Hello, Brian's and possibly not Brian's. This is all the Brian's or a Brian interviews Brian's. And this episode is brought to you by Dubay Juggling Equipment, owned by Brian Dubay. When life gives you lemons, buy better juggling equipment from Brian. And this episode, Brian has a fascinating job, which is better for us when it's not a big part of all our lives, but at the time of recording, it is because he works at the CDC, helping to get us the latest public health information. Here's Brian. My name is Brian Katsowitz. I am a health communications specialist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, the CDC for short. So a little more specifically, my role involves getting information to the public about um, about new research that's coming out of the agency or, or disease outbreaks or some sort of emerging public health threats, thing, things that the public needs to know about. I work to get information to the public through, um, through news media channels or through social media. So kind of act as a liaison between um, the scientists and medical officers who are, who are doing a lot of the research um, and the general public. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to be uh, super relevant to pretty much everyone's life right now. I think, I what, think you so, work, what you do. Um, but I, and I, I think we should make it clear, though, also up front here that, you know, Brian is telling us his personal opinions and not officially speaking for the CDC in this interview. So don't be like, oh, I heard on Brian on this podcast, a.k.a. the CDC said this. So just making that clear so Brian doesn't get into any trouble here. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so, yes, you work at the CDC, which a, br- a lot of Brian's might not know is part of the deep state. No, I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) It's going to be one of those type interviews, huh? No, 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 no. I read that online that people were thinking that and I was like, what the fuck? But uh, no, but actually, I think a lot of people um, probably didn't know that it's in like previously before maybe everything going on right now. didn't know that it's in Atlanta. Like I actually didn't know it was in Atlanta. Um, I assume most like big uh, federal like agencies are in D.C. But I read that the initial agency it evolved from was founded in like 1942 to control malaria, which was primarily in the South. And then like over the years has become this like much broader institution covering all these things. And yeah, so the, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, the, we're the only uh, I believe we're the only federal agency not based in D.C. And, and right where we're headquartered in Atlanta. And as you mentioned, it was sort of formed out of the, the, it was sort of the office of malaria control it was a wartime office. Um, and one of the reasons for that was that there was a lot of uh, military bases in the, in the southeastern part of the U.S. at that time where malaria was, was very prevalent and they did not want to be sending soldiers to World War II who were sick with malaria, obviously. So that became a, a priority um, a part of the War Department and it's sort of evolved from that into to what you what you know and hear about today, which is the CDC, which covers uh, not only malaria, but all kinds of infectious diseases and, and, and chronic disease and injury prevention and everything in between. Yeah, it covers like so much stuff that like I kind of didn't realize would be under its purview. Like, you can know, like almost like workplace office hazards is even kind of like an, as part of it. So it's it's it, it covers a lot and it's kind of considered to be like, you know, the world's like premier public health or agency or organization. I don't know if the WHO has anything to say about that or whatever, but that's what that's kind of like one of those things that's kind of like the ultimate for uh, at least the, the United States. Um, but I don't know, globally, it's also up there. But yeah, so so many questions and we'll get into more detail, but I, I kind of want to just start if you had to describe like your experience the last few months working there, like just these last few months like, <laughs> in like it's... one, like in like, let's say like one or two adjectives, like what would those adjectives be? <laughs> oh, wow. So boil it down to one or two adjectives. So um, one I think is fascinating because it, it is it, not not to, to sound insensitive, but it, it is fascinating to see, to be a part of a, of a pandemic of this magnitude and of this scale that we haven't seen really since 1917. And um, and you've read about it, and, and, and you know, people who are you know, in the in the public health field have heard about it, but have never seen something like this. So to watch it play out, um, and not even from the sidelines, but from being being involved in it, is, has been fascinating. At the same time, it's it's been supremely frustrating um, and heartbreaking um, to 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 see and read about the the sheer magnitude of death and and, and illness and and people's lives being interrupted. Um, and feeling in some ways helpless not to be able to, to, to do more. Um, yeah, but, so fascinating, uh, frustrating, and heartbreaking. I, I feel like that does cover a kind of a, a broad range of emotions, and I can imagine, like, I, I mean, I can only imagine, like, but I think we should maybe talk more about your specific job there where I, I imagine 
you know, all three of those like adjectives and emotions would kind of come into play over these last few months. So like to speak more specifically to like what a health communication specialist is, is like it when a news story says like, you know, according to the CDC, which is when you're speaking, you know, more officially through like, you know, news outlets and stuff like that. Is that often like you who's like telling them like kind of after finding out the information through the appropriate channels? Sometimes, sometimes it is. So, you know, when you hear health communication specialists, that can mean many different things. So that job title is applied to a very a variety of functions within the CDC. So some, some health communication specialists just write copy for the web, for different websites. Mm-hmm. Um, some are, um, are doing translation of, of scientific doc- documents into Spanish or, or uh, you know, French or you know, several other types of languages. Um, and then there's people like me who are, who are specifically working sort of with the media. And so there's two sort of different types of, of kind of media relations for us. And there's the reactive kind where reporters are coming to us with questions and, and we're sort of their, their first contact because with such a huge organization, there, you know, a lot of reporters want to cover a topic or a story, but don't, don't necessarily know who the first person to go to, how, how to find a source, how to find um, somebody to interview. So they'll, they start with us and then we can kind of direct them down a pathway to, oh, this person will be great to speak with, but if you're more interested in talking about this really niche scientific um, research paper, then talk to this person or something like that. Sometimes we can answer the questions ourselves because we do have some level of scientific literacy, but but not to the extent that the, the scientists and doctors who have all the PhDs and the MDs and all those fancy titles at the end of their name have. Um, at the same time, there's also sort of the proactive side of it is when there is new research coming out, that a new paper has been published, or we have a new report coming out that shows how many flu cases there were last year, how many HIV cases there were in 2018. We'll take those and, and kind of find the story within that, try to find the data that's most relevant, that's going to be most um, most sort of newsworthy or noteworthy and then we'll bring that story to reporters um, or you know post about it on social media with say hey this is this is important for you to know and here's why so there's sort of two sides to it yeah so I, I was i was wondering about that is like is it is your role kind of separated into those two sides or is it like there's people that do more focus on like the proactive versus the reactive or is it more just kind of like depending on like in the non-pandemic times your role is more you know let's say trying to get the information out there that the public might not be have an appetite for and then sure of course it, now it's what do we do it, it kind of depends on, on where within the agency you work so we are we are organized by bug um and that's a sort <laughs> of a really basic way to put it but <laughs> Um, we're the centers for disease control and prevention. Yep. So there's several different centers or, or different divisions and each, each center is almost its own organization. So I work within the, the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Disease. And that's a lot of scary sounding words, but within that center, it's the, uh, I work in the division of foodborne and waterborne illness. So when there is a salmonella outbreak linked to contaminated ground beef or E. coli that's been found on lettuce, which you might have heard about last year. That's what my division is working on. So in my role, it's much more proactive. Whenever there's a foodborne outbreak or, or an outbreak in um, from from water, from you know, E. coli in water or something like that, then you know our job is very clear. We have to get word to the to the to the general public about you need to avoid this specific product or need to, you know, if you have this specific type of, of food in your refrigerator, don't eat it, throw it out. Um, other parts of the agency, it's a little bit more reactive and again, it just depends on where you work. Um, so some, there is a, a center specifically for health statistics and they, they publish just mountains and mountains of research on a variety of different kinds of health topics and specific statistics. So how many cases of, measles were there over a 10-year period what, what's the trend looking like and a lot of a lot of that type of things is more reactive because reporters will have a story in mind that that you know they maybe with just one question they need to find out and that's where they'll come to that center so it really kind of depends on where you are and it depends on what the priority of that of that center is yeah you being uh you know specializing in kind of some foodborne and salmonella type stuff i have to say then my my wife is has a grudge against the CDC because of this specific topic, because when she was growing up, her mom wouldn't let her lick the batter because of the CDC telling warning. Oh, they have the cookie dough. Them. So my wife has a grudge against you. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> you know, my, my kids are, are probably agree with your wife. So <laughs> um, I, I, I understand. 
but during like you know these last few months is it kind of like an all hands on deck type of scenario where everybody is kind of covering like kind of now you know working towards this one topic as opposed to the within their specific divisions it can't be a completely hands on all hands on deck because um as as this pandemic continues uh, other diseases don't stop mm-hmm. there's still hepatitis there's still flu there's still hiv there's still injury prevention risks etc cetera, etc cetera. so from, from what i understand this i believe this is the largest response to a public health emergency uh, in, in the history of the CDC. Right now we have about, I think, 5,000 full-time people who are working specifically on COVID. And that's whether they're gathering surveillance or epidemiology data, or they're working in a laboratory, or they're doing logistics, or a variety of different roles. And and so you, those that's kind of staffed on a rotation. You are assigned or asked to kind of leave your day job and go work on the response for 30, 60, or 90 days, sometimes longer, for a specific team or a specific task force or a role. And then, um, so you leave your regular job behind and you work as, you, you kind of dive into to the COVID world and, and that's, that's your full-time job for um, a certain period of time. And then when, when, that's, when you're, that period of time is over, um, you have the option potentially of extending and staying on, or you can rotate back to your normal day job, and then somebody else comes in behind you and, and takes that job. So the rest, so you know, the bottom line is the rest of the the agency needs to keep moving. We still need to keep work focusing and worrying about other infectious diseases and other other public health issues going on. So we can't really let our guard down. So you know, even though you, even for those of us who are not in the response like right now we're still covering for our colleagues who may be. And so it's, we're just kind of spread a little bit more thin in some ways and having to, to kind of do, um, take on different roles than we're used to, or um, just take on more work sometimes. That's sort of the, that's sort of what we're used to because, you know, this is not completely uncommon. I mean, the size of this response is, is huge, but, you know, there was Zika and. 2016, there was Ebola in 2014, there was SARS previously. So, you know, our agency is used to being able to mobilize these kind of responses very quickly. Yeah. So how, how would you describe like the, the differences this time around with, you know, compared to Ebola and Zika and your experience there? So, you know, I can speak to, to my personal experience. Um, before there was ever any confirmed cases in the U.S. back in, back in late January, early February, which seems like it was a lifetime ago. Um, I was working um, to help with, as U.S. citizens from Wuhan, where the, at the time was the epicenter of the epidemic, were being um, were being evacuated out of Wuhan back to the United States, and were being quarantined in the United States, and that was the first time that had happened since 1963. And so I was working on on part of some of those activities, um, and at the time, it you know it was, it was one of these things where. We, nobody knew anything about this disease. I mean, it was brand new for us and, and, and relative to other diseases, it, it is still brand new. And so we didn't really know what we were looking for to, to a certain extent. We knew what the mission at hand was, which is to keep people healthy, but we hadn't seen it here in the U.S. yet. So there was a lot of unknowns and a lot of mysteries. Um, fast forward to May when I, I actually went to Nebraska to help their uh, state health department with some of their activities because the folks at the local and state health departments right now are just completely swamped, as you can imagine. Um, and we're trying to provide support wherever we can. I was in, in Nebraska, and obviously things are, are much different then than they were in February. But really what's what's much different, I think, from my perspective than what we saw with e- Ebola, for instance, is that we don't know that we don't know that much about this disease, this virus, because it's brand new. With Ebola, we've known about that since I believe at least since the 70s. So there's there is um, research and, and, and scientific evidence we can fall back on that kind of guides our decision making about what our interventions are going to be or what our recommendations or our guidelines are going to be for hospitals or for doctors or for the community. For COVID, it's just, again, there is we knew next to nothing about this um, in December. And you think about the amount of time it takes to gather a lot of evidence and really know inside and out a virus or a pathogen it takes it takes decades sometimes i mean there's we're still figuring out you know the best treatment for tuberculosis and we've known about that since the 19th century and so with this the scientific community has done an amazing job i think of coming together and and really really starting to put together research and, and learn about this but you can't really rush the scientific process it takes time and so 
in a lot of ways, we're, we're building the airplanes for flying it. Um, and that's a scary thing to say, but that's the reality of it with, with this one is that it's brand new. And so there's a lot we don't know, and we're having to kind of change course a lot and course correct. Um, as, yeah, as and new... has this been, uh, would this go back into what you were describing as like kind of the frustrating part of your job as part of like, I imagine there's just so much like public appetite for information and it's just like science takes time and everybody wants stuff like right now, you know, like wants stuff yesterday. And it's like, I just imagine that, I don't know if you specifically in your role have had to like field requests and tell people that like we we're, we're, we still don't know, we don't have that info yet. But I just imagine like being in that position has got to be frustrating to just be waiting on information like within the agency or within the organization as well. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, even from a personal perspective, you know, I'm, I'm sheltering in place at my house, just like so many other people are. And, and I want to know when's it safe to go outside or, you know, when's it safe to do this just like everybody else does. So that, that appetite, um, uh, you know, I have the same. And so, yes, as a, as a professional, who's expected to have the answers and at CDC, you know, we, I think to a certain extent, we pride ourselves on, 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 on being the sort of the go-to for, for scientific questions and answers in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And we just don't have the answers here. And, and we want to, we want to be able to have that information to, to make the best decisions. And I think, I think the folks who are, who are at the top of the food chain, who are making the decisions are doing it as best they can. But, but, you know, again, there's just, the evidence and the scientific research on this is, is limited. So that is a big, a big part of the frustration is just the, the unknowns. And then, you know, from, from a communications perspective, we, we want to be, we want to be right, but we also, at the same time, we want to be fast. And a lot of times we, we, we don't want to rush things. We don't want to, and I, I say that like when I, I speak about a foodborne illness, we don't want to go out and say, you have to avoid this food if we're not 100% positive that that food is what's causing people to be sick because we lose credibility if we're wrong. And so with this, it's, it's really having to find that balance of get the information out to the, to the people who need it as fast as possible, but make sure you're right. And that's what's frustrating and, and sort of keeps you up at night. Has this, uh, this virus been like, you know, made it more challenging? Is it like, is it a, I don't know, is it a faster speed or whatever the right term is than Ebola and Zika was? In your experience? What do you what do you mean what do you mean faster? I guess like the the need for speed, let's say, in 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 responding to Ebola and Zika compared to this, was there is there more of a need for speed now? I'm guessing like uh, just because of the um, scope, or is it just because of the virus itself spreads in a different uh, like a uh, frequency or speed? I guess. I mean, probably a, a little bit of both. I mean, I think that the, the general public, you know, the, the, the eyes of the world are on us. I mean, the general public is, is constantly wanting more and more information and wanting updates and wanting and are, are paying attention at a scale that we probably haven't seen before. And so there, there is almost this need to continue to provide updates and provide information um, as fast as we can. And at the same time, the, the, the virus itself um, dictates the need for, responding quickly because it's spread so fast and we've seen that I mean look we're at in just in the United States somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half million reported cases and that's from four months ago that was zero so it's 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 scary I think to see how quickly it spreads um, and so that is I think in a lot of ways where the need for speed comes in I was waiting for you to say whether you're gonna say coronavirus or covid or whatever because <laughs> I was just curious like what what do you know, workers at the CDC, like internally call it, uh, you know, colloquially or whatever. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's like one term, I think, you know, for, for brevity, it's COVID. Just, you know, everybody's going to know what that means. Um, we, we started out with coronavirus um, back in, you know, January, February, March. Coronavirus doesn't, isn't really a name. It's just, it, it literally means a, a new type of virus, or it was the novel coronavirus at the time, which just means a new type of virus. A coronavirus is a, is a family of viruses. Um, just like SARS was, you know, part SARS was a part of that. Yeah, yeah, other yeah. Viruses as well. So, so COVID nineteen, you know, is is basically the the I, I believe specifically is um, is the more is, technically appropriate, right? Like COVID yeah. is sort of the te- it's sort of the technical term for it. Um, but uh, you know, if you I think you know these days you say Corona, you say COVID, you say COVID nineteen. People yeah, know. Yeah. I, I was just curious if like a bunch amongst a bunch of like people, you know scientifically inclined for technical precision, et cetera, 
they would maybe like around the office cringe if people say corona or <laughs> whatever uh, if it's no it's covid-19 like, there's <laughs> going to be a, a bit of that going on um, yes yeah, some might i don't I, I don't know i could i could speak just from i could speak just from what i've seen and i don't i think generally speaking it's it's not quite that you know the 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 science you know for people who are writing the scientific manuscripts that's probably a little bit different and you'll probably see the the specifically the specifically the covid-19 term and i think some people might even get hung up on do you put a dash between the d yeah. and the 19 or you know do you have a double dash um so what what is the ratio of like you know health communicators there overall at the cdc to like more like sciencey scientist type people that's a good question i i don't i can't say i know the answer to it i mean in my division of five to six hundred people um there's probably 25 to 50 full-time communicators and, and that's that's actually a fairly healthy roster of communicators not everybody oh yeah, yeah. That no that, that seems to make more sense but yeah it seems to make sense like it's at the cdc it's going to be a lot of people you know doing research and development and all sort of testing and tracking and whatnot and then there's got to be the people that communicate everything to everyone but yeah and, that, and that's and I'll, that varies based on you know partly based on the, the priorities of of the center so there's the the office for smoking health which a huge part of that is obviously communication. So they have, they have a lot of funding for um, big mass communication campaigns and things like that. So they'll, they'll have more communicators than, than a division like that specifically work looks at, um, you know, parasitic diseases or, you know, within a specific country, which doesn't necessarily necessitate as many communicators. Yeah. So like does something like, you know, singing happy birthday twice hand washing does that is that type of thing i don't know if that specifically came from like a the cdc or something or is it but is that like kind of representative of the goal of trying to communicate health to the public in like easy and like helpful terms that is actually that's funny that's that's funny that you said that's 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 the first i guess this is that really was some of the first time a lot of people are hearing that that specific sort of tip for hand washing which is to sing happy birthday twice but um that's, that's been around and actually our, our division had a, um, a, a hand washing campaign, a communications campaign back in October of last year. So before this all started, and that was a big part of it was when trying to teach kids how to wash their hands properly, you know, you could tell them 20 seconds or you can make it easier for them to understand and give them something specific they can do instead of just counting to 20. So that, yeah, that's a pretty good representation of, of I think health communications is how do you, you know, we, we, we want to arm people with the information and the resources that, that they need to protect themselves um, and to keep themselves and their families healthy. Um, but you have to do it in a way that they're going to understand is going to resonate with them. Just telling somebody, oh, this is what this is how you're going to what can make you sick. So don't do this only has a limited shelf life. So you have to find ways to, to, to provide you know, specific actionable items for people that they're going to understand that they're going to be able to communicate to their kids or to their families. Um, and that's something that they got to remember. Could you just like talk through a little bit, like who you like kind of interact with, like on like a day-to-day level as like a health communicator within your division and your organization, you said there's like, you know, 25 ish other health communicators within your group. And then there's, you know, you know, hundreds of scientists, et cetera. But like, how does kind of like your role like play out almost like in a, on a day-to-day basis or is it like kind of like every week is different and i'm assuming you know non-pandemic times are a, a bit different than than when sure. it's um, an emergency it's yeah i mean i think it you know it's it's a, a little bit different uh week to week or day to day but uh, but generally speaking you know, we have our, our sort of our team of communicators and that includes um our web developers so that so the people who who you know really should get more credit a lot of times for the folks who are constantly updating all of the CDC web pages with all the most recent information. And so we will, obviously we work with them and we work with graphic designers who are helping design some of the, the, the infographics and animations that you might've seen, um, um, you know, with, related to COVID or some of the other disease topics. Um, but we you know the first and foremost, we have to work with the scientists and these are um, largely epidemiologists. And so those are the folks who are, um, studying patterns of disease um, and and, see, and looking at if is it, is it going up or going down um, in a certain community among a specific race or ethnicity or a specific age group and, and why is that happening really t- tackling those scientific questions so we have to work with them because they are the they are the purveyors of the information they're the keepers of all of the all of that data that, that we need to get out to the to to the general public or to doctors or to, to other audiences so we have to stay in real close contact with them 
and and you know just and just like in any other office setting i mean there's meetings and then there's more meetings and there's more meetings and and but there's also um you know looking through scientific manuscripts i don't have a, a real heavy scientific background but um it's you know you have to have a you know a certain level of scientific literacy because a lot of, of our job is looking through new research that's coming out or new journal articles that are coming out and seeing okay what's is there is this something is this you know how is this adding to the existing body of research is this changing what our recommendations are for a specific disease or a specific treatment and you kind of have to play reporter a lot of times where we have to go and find out and have to ask the right questions of, of our scientists about what is it that that um you know, within your new your new paper that we need to be able to communicate, and we also work with our, our legislative affairs people who are who are always there, who are working with, who are communicating to the policymakers, the folks who are who are you know controlling the purse strings, want to know, want to get briefed about, again about a, a disease, about a new threat, about COVID, about an E. coli outbreak or something like that. So they have they have to get the same information that we have to have. So it's working with them. And our, and our and our scientists on the scientific side, and really trying to understand more about about what they're doing, and how how they're how they're doing it. How did you come up with this specific data? And because we know what the questions the reporters or that the general public wants to know. So you see that this, you know, and I'll I'll refer to COVID as sort of the most relevant example. But there are fifty thousand new cases that you know today than there were yesterday. Well, why is that? Is it because there's been more testing? Is it because that there's something else going on? Is there a big, a huge outbreak in a, in a, you know, in a meat packing facility or a jail or something like that? So we have to ask those questions and anticipate, you know, what the, what the questions are going to be from from the general public, so we can you know, respond accordingly. Yeah, can you speak uh, to what goes into media training an epidemiologist? Because I can imagine that that would be could be challenging sometimes, depending on the skill sets of the someone with, you know, the keeper of like the data and the science necessarily yeah, the not. greatest communicator. It, it's, it can be challenging. It's great fun for me. I love it because it's sort of, um, we, we, we refer to the, um, a lot of the epidemiologists and, and the scientists as the, the SMEs, so that the subject matter experts. And so they have that, um, the, the, that, that level of expertise that, that, um, that, that we don't have, but for media training, we are the experts, right? So we need so they have to they have to be able to sort of listen and hear from us about this is how this is this is how to create a soundbite from you know when you hear a question about you know this is how you sort of form that into a soundbite that it's going to make the news or that's going to be used in a newspaper article, and this is how you take you know they're they they live in the world of of scientific and medical jargon. And, and utilize language that I, you know I don't understand half the time, so I have to help them understand how to how to speak in plain language and how to clearly communicate really complex topics. It's hard to do, um, and a lot of it is just sort of is workshopping. Okay, so this is this is a finding from this this new from this new journal article, um, but it's really complex and it's complicated and, and it's it's hard to understand for somebody who doesn't live in this world. So how do we, you know? create a soundbite or a message from that that's going to resonate with people because we know that, you know, the collective, um, the, the collective attention span of, of you know, of us of, is, is not very long. So if you're reading a newspaper article or you're, you're, you're seeing, uh, you know, a, a, um, a, a story on, uh, you know, in local news or on CNN or something like that, you know, people might pay attention for, a, you know, 10 seconds or 20 seconds, or they might read the headline in the first few paragraphs and then move on. So we got to catch their attention as fast as we can. So to do that, you got to, you got to kind of create some sort of interesting language sometimes. Um, scientists generally don't like to do that. I think uh, I, I speak really uh, as a, as a, in a generality because they're, they're trained to be very objective with the science and, and, and not, you know, deviate from a specific scientific finding. And sometimes we have to, we have to find ways to make it interesting or make it, you know, relevant for people without compromising the integrity of the science or, or without bending the science. So it's, it's a lot of fun because it, you know, it, it's the, the, the opportunity to, you know, kind of, kind of dig inside their brain a little bit and, and find, you know, the little nugget of, of a soundbite or a little nugget of information that, um, that is going to, that's going to really create, um, a lot of news coverage and it's something that people are going to understand and it's going to 
create um, change. It's going to impact people's perceptions and, and, and their health behavior, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. Yeah. So I guess first, how, how long have you worked at the CDC? Because I'm, I'm curious of like, you know, how many, you know, epidemiologists you've like worked with over the years now, media training them, or if it's like maybe you're just working with a few specific ones in, under your specialty division. Um, I've, I've been at the CDC, I, I want to say in some capacity for about, um, about eight years. So I, I started as a, as a contractor um, or a consultant, um, as, a, as a lot of folks do, and then made my way into kind of full-time government service in, 20, in 2013. Um, so yeah, I've worked with, a, and I've, I've had a couple different stops around the agency and in, in working in different settings and different um, centers. I've worked with a lot of, of, of scientists and epidemiologists, and, and some are great um, natural communicators um, and are used to, to standing on a stage in front of their colleagues and answering questions about their new research um, and are, are just have a natural um, predilection for being able to communicate things clearly and concisely. And then there are those who it doesn't come as natural to, or there's some that, that don't want to do it, or there's some that don't see the value in it. And that's, some, that's another challenge as well is there are, there are those scientists who, who just want to do the research and, and, and publish it. And then that's it. Um, we have to kind of constantly remind them that, look, the science is only good if people know about it. Um, if you just publish an art, a journal article and nobody ever reads it, then how effective is it? How, how much is that contributing to public health? And so we kind of have to maybe pull them out of their shell a little bit sometimes. But um, for the most part, I mean, I think, you know, the scientists who work at the CDC, they understand that, you know, the, the gravity of what they're doing and the, and the importance of it. That's, that's why we work at the CDC is we, we love to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves and to publish um, a scientific paper and then have people read it and, and have it make it have an impact yeah. on people's lives is ultimately what we're trying to do. So people get that. Yeah. So does the CDC have like a, a TikTok account or, or I guess I'm uh, wondering like, how forward thinking like like you know per, the approaches there like if because i saw that there's you know i saw there's like some cdc podcasts like is the approach at like if there's a communication channel out there that like basically as an organization they'll try to try to be there um yeah i saw, I yeah, saw there, some we, like cdc like safe practice ads on like hulu like you know some animations and stuff like that and i, I was surprised to see that yeah we you know we, we try to adapt um as, as fast as we can with with the you know the changing times and how how people are finding news or how people are getting their information and obviously so many people uh you know now have gravitated to social media to 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 get their news and so we have to find we have to go where our audience is we can't expect them to come to us so yeah we're, we're not I, I don't think we're on tiktok I don't, I don't think that's coming anytime soon um <laughs> but uh we, we were all we were really active on google plus for a minute that unfortunately didn't work out but um we're all over instagram and, and facebook and twitter and all those things and, and we or you know, try to create animations and, and try to create graphics that are going to you know find ways to go viral. One of the more creative um, campaigns I saw, which is you know some people may remember it, it was probably about ten years ago, and it was CDC put out a is a um, it was at the height of the Walking Dead and Zombie Land, where you know oh, zombies yeah, yeah, had yeah. pervaded <laughs> pop culture. The CDC put out a. Um, it was a zombie. It was a zombie, like a zombie apocalypse preparation kit, and it was like, okay, so when the zombie apocalypse hits, here's what you need. You need your water. You need your batteries. You need all these things, and and really, it was it was specifically it was for emergency preparedness. So if there was a, a natural disaster, here's here's sort of your go pack. Here's what you need to have. Here's how you need to get ready. Uh, okay. But but it's, but it was it was it was branded. It was marketed as a, as sort of the, the zombie apocalypse. And um, so that <laughs> was like that a was, stealth way to be prepared for the other disasters by exactly you know, tapping into something. Yeah, like exactly yeah, tapping cool. into the collective <laughs> uh, pop culture and, and and being able to to utilize that for what we're trying to say. That, that's, that's an example of something that I, I think CDC was very forward thinking on. I was not oh, a part yeah, of that, sure. but I was <laughs> super proud to, to, to see that come out. So we're not always that creative, but we have some, we have some really creative people working behind the scenes who are trying to find ways to, um, to, to get that information out to everybody. In training to be a, a health professional, because um, you know, you've had a background in this now, you're, you've been quite experienced and you've, I'm sure there's been ongoing like exercises to improve and whatnot. I'm just curious, like, has there ever been exercises where you kind of game out what to do if certain safe practices become very politicized? 
Um, like, hmm. like let's like, say, you know, I'm kind of referring to like the mask situation right now, but like, I'm just curious on like, has this in health training, like, is there a way, like, has there, is there any training that goes to like, okay, here's necessarily how you could try to overcome this obstacle or is everything right now be kind of the new territory? No, there, there, there certainly is. And there's actually, there's a whole sort of theory of, of that or a whole sort of actually a profession. And it's essentially, it's, it's something that um, nutritionists and wellness coaches and people who work in fitness are, are deal with. And it's basically, it's behavior change is how to you, how do you help people with, with changing their behavior? And there's uh, so many different theories on how to do that. Uh, a big part of it um, is, is understanding is, is there a barrier that's causing somebody to um, not take on a new behavior? So I'll speak to like, if somebody's trying to, to lose weight and they want to start eating healthier, what is trying to, you know, it's, that's a difficult thing to overcome. And a lot of it is, is helping them find their motivation. A lot of it is helping them understand the importance of it and, and, and identifying and eliminating the barriers to making that change and then helping them find a plan that they will be able to implement and maintain whatever the new behavior change is. So there, there is a whole, a whole library of textbooks that have been written about behavior change theory. Um, so this is not a, it's certainly not a new thing for us. I think that the, the issue with wearing a mask is, is something that can be applied to, to um, just like any other behavior change is trying to get people to understand sort of the, the, the importance of it. And, um, and giving people sort of tangible advice that they can use on, on, you know, when, how, why, all those things that, that can, that can help people overcome um, the, the reasons for, for not wearing it. But there are a lot of third rail type of, of topics that we have to be careful about because we know that it can be divisive. But I guess, <laughs> I don't know if you can speak at all to how, like, I'm just cured, you know, super curious of like, how did things like play out like internally or like maybe anecdotally in your experience, like when the president suggested ingesting like cleaning products that could combat the virus? Is there, <laughs> can you speak to that at all? Um, our goal ultimately is to, is to try to, to make sure the information that's getting out there is accurate and, and is, is, is the right information and, and trying to correct any misinformation. So, um, if there is a, if there's any misinformation out there that, that, that creates a headache for us, but, but ultimately we try to, um, as much as we can focus on our day to day and on the job at hand and, and not try to worry too much about what's happening in, in DC. Uh, and I, I will say that we're, we're not politicians. We have, I think, I think there's one or maybe two political appointees of the entire agency, but the rest of us are civil servants. Yeah. I didn't so realize just... that the director was such a political appointment. It, it's somebody who's like at the, you know, at the discretion of the president can be fired when kind of like willy nilly or whatever. And just looking up the directors, I saw that like, you know, probably during your first, you know, half of your time at the CDC, you had like one director. And then in the last three years or so, there's like four different directors have cycled through it, you know. It has it has been a revolving door over the last few years. Um, or has that had any effect on like your kind of just day to day job, or is that kind of too too much up at the top thing, kind of where it's not necessarily trickling down to everything else? You know, I, I can't say it's it's had a big impact on 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 me um, that I that I know of. I should say that um, sometimes things are happening behind the scenes that affect your day to day that you, you may not even know. But um, no, it has it hasn't. I think from for the rest of us, um, it's just been it's been business as usual. We we have uh, our our current director's been in place for I, I want to say. Uh, maybe three years now, two or three years. So there's been some stability at the top in that time, um, and and typically it's it's a it's a really difficult role. I should say that. And not, oh, it not seems like I it would, for sure. <laughs> I had. Um, I wouldn't want that job. <laughs> no, I mean it's you're 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 you know you're constantly having to answer to um, the folks on the hill, uh, as well as having you know a, a extremely high pressure job. I um. I my, had my limited interaction with my our previous director who was there during the the Obama administration, but I I was um, I went he had a he has a the, the director has a conference room outside of his office where they can do they can have meetings obviously or they have tell you know maybe have a press conference or a telebriefing, so I was there for a, for a telebriefing we had and so the director director pops out from his office for a meeting and hops in the telebriefing where there's reporters from 
Associated Press, New York Times, every major national outlet was on the phone. And he, he jumped on, looked at a piece of paper that sort of gave the briefing of what he was talking about, digested it quickly, went, sort of gave the telebriefing, answered a couple questions, and then handed it off to somebody else, went back to his office for a meeting with, um, with a, a group of congressmen for an oversight committee. And that's just like, and that's his day to day, every, you know, like meeting after meeting after meeting, these extremely high pressure meetings that me, it would take me two days to prepare for something like that. It took him five minutes and they, they can excel in that type of environment. So it takes a special kind of person, I think, to be able to do that. Um, and uh, I, I applaud them. And I also have no interest in doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think like we're on the same page there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see, I have, I got my questions from my sister, who is like a, a doctor uh, in Philly, I mentioned. And can you, can you ask him what he thinks is the most scary emerging public health pathogen virus, bacteria, et cetera, besides COVID? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think that the answer would, would likely vary because some people who are studying and are spent their whole career studying a specific virus or a family of viruses might have a different opinion. To, to me, I think that the, um, the real sort of concern or sort of scary thing to think about for the future is antibiotic resistance. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's so many types of bacteria that we've, been able to treat, we've been able to find treatment for over the years, it's really since the advent of penicillin, that a lot of them, a lot of these, these bacteria are, are sneaky and they find ways around it and they find ways to adapt to it. And so that's what, and they become resistant to, to bacteria and that makes it more difficult to treat certain infections. And that's um, been something that obviously not only CDC, but around the world, a lot of uh, people are, are paying attention to and studying and trying to better understand why and how to counteract that. But it's, it's a problem that's continuing to, to grow. And, um, and, and, you know, I hope that a lot of people smarter than me can, can figure it out because it's, um, it's certainly concerning to think about, you know, the time before penicillin, penicillin was discovered, you know, how vulnerable we were to infection. Well, that, you know, I, I don't have any interest in going back to that time period. So um, that's antibiotic resistance is a, is a, is a pretty scary thing to think about. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, she asks, uh, okay, you already covered this actually. She asks if a, if a zombie apocalypse is ever going to happen in our lifetime. But I think you kind of, <laughs> uh, I guess you didn't ask that specifically, but you've, we, we, you've, you've answered to uh, resources that can help you be more prepared for it. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Never hurts to be. Yeah, I don't. I don't see coming, but uh, never hurts to be prepared. Um, she also asks, you know, have you ever met Dr. Fauci, and is he wonderful in in person? <laughs> I have not. I have not met Dr. Fauci, but I used to. Um, his. I used to the my my previous um, job at, at CDC was in the National Center for. Um, it's a mouthful, HIV, AIDS, viral hepatitis, STD, and TB prevention. And um, it's, it's the, the agency at the NIH um, where the, the, the specific area that Dr. Fauci's in his, in his normal day-to-day -day job he oversees is sort of the NIH. At the NIH is the same, is, is this working on the same stuff. So I used to work a lot with his office and he would, um, uh, I'd see some emails back and forth with him. So I've never met him in person, but um, extremely knowledgeable, super nice guy and somebody that uh, I'm thankful that we have um, to kind of help to help uh, be at the forefront of this pandemic because, um, you know, he, he knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear people that are like, you know, such fans of uh, Fauci from like scientific backgrounds and stuff like that. He seems to be yeah, able people, to people, bridge a lot of divides <laughs> in certain ways. People with, and you know, the, the guy's amazing. He's, he's in his seventies. Apparently he runs like five miles every day or something like that. And, <laughs> and obviously, you know, he's working probably 60 hours a week. I mean, he's, he's nonstop and he's out in the forefront of this. So, um, yeah, when I, when I get to his age, I, I can, I can only hope that I can be you know half as productive as he is. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I, we could all strive to hope to be like, a, exactly like in the future. Um, so I guess maybe this is speaking a little bit to like this other thing, like, you know, pathogens and emergencies to watch out for. But like, you know, there's obviously been like hiccups with this whole process of responding to uh, this, this current virus. Um, you know, we don't need to go into details of all this stuff because it's like it's, it's out there in the media of like, you know, there's testing, manu there's manufacturing flubs of testing stuff, containment issues, et cetera, et cetera. But do you kind of get the impression that like some of this stuff can be helped? full for you know learning from and correcting 
for something that could potentially be even more deadly in the future? Like, do you see this as being like, there's like a weird silver lining to now we can kind of correct the systems that need to be updated and things like that. Like I know the CARES Act, like it brought a lot more money into updating, like, you know, outdated databases and things like technology and infrastructure within like CDC and stuff like that. Like, I just was curious about like your- Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, my, my optimistic side in all of this and is that, is that there will be progress and, and a refreshed appreciation for public health preparedness in the future. Um, I think a lot of uh, medical and, and public health researchers and doctors have, have been a victim of their own success to a certain extent over the past 20 or 30 years because, um, you know, like for, for me, I, I, I did not grow up in the age of smallpox. Smallpox was eradicated. Polio is, is, is eliminated from almost every country in the world. We don't really hear much about measles anymore. And some of these these diseases that were so prevalent in the prior to the 1960s um, and, and, were, and were constantly threatening people and, and were wrecking havoc on, on communities are largely gone. And, and we're spoiled to a certain extent because we haven't, you know, we don't sort of recognize the threat that infectious disease maybe can, um, can present. And so, you know, from my personal opinion, I, I feel like maybe some of the infrastructure and some of the, the systems that we had in place and, you know, have been taken for granted in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And when that happens, you see an erosion of, of the systems that we need to help us prepare for those things. And I can't speak to, to whether or not that was a factor at play now, but I, I do believe that, you know, moving forward in the future, I think people will have a, a renewed appreciation for the need to be prepared for the next potential pandemic and how disruptive it can be to our lives and how, and how much, and how much tragedy it can cause. Um, hopefully again in the future that, you know, we'll, we'll, we will see that, you know, time will tell. You know how like, so like when it was emerging in like the, in China and like, you know, kind of across the world, it felt like, okay, there's this thing that's happening over there. It's, it doesn't feel like this immediate danger to me personally in my life. I could go on living my life. Um, has there been any tangible differences around kind of like similar to that feeling where you've been working in Atlanta, which and in the South where there hasn't been as much previously infections, but like, has there been a, a noticeable difference, anything tangible at the CDC now that it seems to be spiking everywhere in the South? Like it has the, has the mood of the uh, coworkers and stuff like that? Has there been any change at all? I'm just kind of curious, like for you. It's, it's hard to know we're, we're all for the most part working from home still. So um, day to day, you know, there's not a whole lot of interaction with your coworkers outside of, zoom or skype meetings or emails um i think every you know people here just like anywhere are are anxious um as as numbers go up um when and, and as as the school year approaches and you know the questions about whether or not to send your school-aged children back to school um or something you know are these challenges that that, that are presenting to to parents at the cdc and everywhere else so um i ultimately you know day to day that the job you know we just again we put our head down and just and just keep working and just keep grinding away the stakes are so high that there is no you know there's no or there's no giving up on this one it's just gonna gonna gonna, gonna keep on working and, and and honestly you know working in public health again i speak for myself we're used to kind of dealing in bad news a lot of times we're used to fighting uphill battles that's something that we that we do because you know, we're always having to, to try to play catch up with diseases. So th this is no different to a certain extent. So it's just, just, just keep on fighting the fight, keep chopping away. Um, yeah. How much of the, how much of the coworkers, I guess with the, the communicators, the health communicators, you're it's probably much more able to work from home. Um, like, but I imagine like, you know, a lot of the scientists need to go to the labs and stuff like that. But like, if, if you had to guess like roughly what percentage of CDC employees are able to work from home or are, Versus, you know, I would think being basically essential workers, some of them, I, you know, I, I don't know if I could put a percentage on it. I, I, I went to um, I went to the office uh, about a month and a half ago. I needed to go to, um, to get a couple things and it, and it was a ghost town. So the, the, the vast majority of people are working from home full time. Obviously, our, our labs are fully staffed. Um, we have a, an emergency operations center that 
that um, does have some people there, but for the most part, even people who are working in that center are working from home um, just because of the need to, to socially distance just like anywhere else. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, I imagine even more so it's like, you kind of have to follow, you got to follow your own guidelines for, you know, returning to office work, et cetera. We, um, we have, we have to practice what we preach. And so, yeah, yeah exactly. I, we, I have not, I've not worked in the office since, um, since early March and, and, Probably ninety percent of, of my coworkers uh, are in the same boat. Have you ever played? Uh, do, you, do your coworkers ever play Pandemic, that board game? <laughs> I think people do. Maybe it's maybe a little too close to home for some people. Um, <laughs> I was curious. Yeah, how would that play? like? Is that uh, are people like let's play Pandemic? Like, no, I I, I don't want to be at work right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like it feels like oh, just going back to the office. So yeah, I don't know how popular it is, but yeah, we're familiar with it. <laughs> okay, so yeah, just um, can you just you mentioned you're originally from Georgia, right? Correct. Um, so then, and then what was kind of your route to the CDC again? So I, I had sort of um, a secure, a circuitous route here. I, I, um, I, I guess my, my interest in public health was sparked when I was a kid. I, I saw the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, and okay. I love that movie. It's so, it, and to me, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, that's so cool. I want to be doing what they do. And, and then I went and failed my, my next science test. So I, just, I just didn't really have like <laughs> a natural scientific ability. So I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to be doing that, whatever. Um, and gravitated more toward like riot, riot, writing based uh, careers and, and went into PR journalism type work. Um, and after college, I was working for um, doing hospital communications, and it sort of occurred to me that I could still be involved in some of this public health infectious disease world without needing to be working in a laboratory or, or you know, treating patients at a clinic. I could, I could actually be, you know, writing things and, and sort of using my skills in that way. So I went to grad school for, for health communications um, at American University and then um, came back to Atlanta with sort of the aim of, of going to the CDC and um, it sort of warmed my way into the organization a little bit at a time through um, starting out at a nonprofit and working on a specific sort of funding opportunity through CDC and then coming in as a, as a contractor for a couple of years and then eventually as a, as a full-time employee. Okay, let's get into the Brian questions then. You know, let's go, let's go way back to the beginning now. Do you know why your parents uh, named you Brian? Oh, you know, I think it was kind of random. Um, I, I do know that I was a, a, a originally called Jared for like two or three days. And then they, my parents, some, for some reason decided, you know, it's, he doesn't seem like a Jared. So they changed it to Brian. But um, my, my middle name is, is, is I was named after a, a, a relative, but um, I think is one of the, my, my, I think is one of these things where my parents just kind of spent a little time with me and figured out, Hey, he seems like a Brian. <laughs> I like it. I think that's a good way to, uh, to name a kid. Yeah, I mean, it makes it harder See, for the birth certificate process, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some minor inconvenience in the beginning, and then, you know, you got something for the rest of your life. <laughs> but uh, so probably no reason you know why I versus Y, right? No, but I mean, and as, as far as I'm concerned, I is the only way to spell it. So sorry <laughs> to all you, you Brian's with a Y. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, and I'm guessing ancestry didn't necessarily play in at all because it was just you seemed like a Brian. Like uh, yeah, Brian's an Irish name, and my family is 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 um, if you can tell from my last name, Katzowitz is not Irish, um, so we're, we're Polish Russian. Uh, so it was it was not a um, it was not a uh, a tribute to uh, to our Irish. Uh, okay. To our yeah. Irish so, don't know if there was some sneaky lineage in there in your your ancestry. <laughs> Nothing I'm aware of. <laughs> okay, so two part question: dead or alive? Uh, one other Brian to meet, like who would it be? And then favorite Brian of all time. Yeah, this is, there's so many good Brian's out there. So question for you though, is <laughs> Dan O'Brien, the former uh, Olympic decathlete, does he count as one of, would he count as a Brian or is it just first name Brian's? Uh, I mean, I would have to, unless he goes by Brian, like if his friends call him, Hey, O'Brien or O'Brien, you know, I don't know if that necessarily counts, but like you can be, you know, an honorary uh, answer. Which one would that be, meet or favorite? Well, no, no, I don't think I'm going to use him. I was just kind of, when I was thinking about it, I was just, just kind of curious. So I feel like uh, it's just, if somebody goes by Brian, their entire, like, you know, in their day to day, in their life, they're a Brian, no matter what it says on, you know, their. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's good. That's, that's a, I just wanted to be clear on the criteria. 
So I think favorite Brian, I'm, I may have to say Brian Cranston. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He's a, he's a great one. <laughs> I mean, Breaking Bad, he was on Seinfeld. Like, you know, the, guy, the guy's been around. Um, but you know what? Whenever, whenever somebody answers uh, I is the right way to spell it and then they choose Cranston as their favorite, oh, I always have to point out that, you know. You're right, you're right. Kind of, you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of being a hypocrite there. Yeah, logical fallacy. <laughs> you're right. Um, I think maybe the Brian I would like to meet, um, just because I think he'd have some really amazing stories, is Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Oh, wow, yeah. He would, he would have some – very interesting stories but i feel like yeah he's someone who also i think needs to be like media trained to like <laughs> c- communicate those stories as well that, that seems like that could seems be very interesting but very out there uh, that's true yeah so maybe yeah you know i'll shout out to brian may because as well because you know the oh, guy yeah. lived the guy who was in queen for 30 years you know he's got interesting freddie mercury stories so he'd be cool to meet too yeah i think may would be definitely be one of the top ones to meet <laughs> And he's like a he's like an astrophysicist, so it's like oh, that's true. Crazy. Yeah, interesting yeah. guy. Um, okay, so here's a trivia question. Um, at the start of April, uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell had the virus, but a few weeks later, he started feeling better and began doing what every night from his home in New York. Um, uh, um, is this a this is a a, a kids friendly show, Brian? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it, but like you can curse and whatnot. <laughs> um, God, what is doing something every night? I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, exercising. I, I don't okay, know. Hint, I, I, he was doing it from his window. Um, playing music. I, I really have no idea. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think we can take that as an, an answer. Like he was taking kind of a, I think a cue from like the Italian, uh, people okay. in Italy, the opera singers who would sing from their window. Oh yeah. So he was singing, uh, he kept every night at like 7 PM. He was singing the impossible dream from man of La Mancha. Cause he, he won a Tony award nomination for that. Cause he's like a, a Broadway singer. This is my quest to follow that star. And then like three weeks later, uh, he ended up stopped doing it because crowds started to gather to hear him. And then there was like crowd safety concerns, of course. <laughs> I think I remember reading that now. That's, that that that's, uh, that sounds familiar. So yeah, that's I did see the stuff with Italy. So that's what I was thinking was maybe he's playing music from his window. Yeah, yeah. So here's a harder question: uh, choose a first name other than Brian if you had to. Like, what would that be? You know, I I, I always like the name Scott. Um, it's you know single syllable simple, and with my last name, I feel like you need like a really short, like easy to pronounce first name. So I, I I'll go with Scott. Okay, good. Yeah, my, my parents will like that answer. My brother's name's Scott. <laughs> oh, good, good name. Yeah. Uh, have you named anything? A pet, a car, a bike, a kid? Uh, yes, I've named. Uh, I've named children. Well, I, I could. I should say my wife. I, I've contributed to the naming. You know, <laughs> but I, I named. Uh, I named my dog from uh, from twelve from who uh, when I got him twelve years ago. Okay, so Is what that- was the name? Because I I want to just hopefully keep going on my theory and which has been proven correctly that Brian's are good at naming things. So my, my dog was named, he was, he was named after my, my, my uncle who was uncle Sonny. So the dog's name was Sonny, but, but Sonny, like Sonny, Sonny like, like Sonny, like Sonny Corleone, like S O N N Y. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, no, I think, yeah, you're, you're contributing towards the, uh, towards my theory here. <laughs> Glad to do it. Uh, overall, would you say that being a Brian has been a plus or a minus in your life? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty happy with my life overall. So I think uh, I, I don't I don't think that um, I can I can think of any negative experiences I had specifically because the having the name Brian. So I, I think overall it's been a it's been a plus positive. Okay, well, follow up question to that then is: Have you had any memorable instances of your name being misspelled Brain? Oh, you know, so many. Um, it happens all the time. And I, I heard some of the previous episodes where people have a similar experience. I think it must be like an Outlook autocorrect or something like that and in emails because, I mean, probably weekly I get emails from people that I that like know me well, that I, I work with every day and, and they still call me brain. But I can't think of any like one specific memorable instance. It's just, it's just a really frequent, really frequent occurrence. Just a common reoccurring uh, nightmare. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, you know, I, I actually even have like a, like a, when I, if somebody notices it, like, after like in, a, in an email thread, they noticed they mis- they misspelled the name or they called me brain. They might apologize, and I always have like a a sort of a, a boilerplate response to it, which is like, oh, it's okay. I figured it was a compliment toward my intelligence or something like that. So I'm pretty used to that. 
Yeah, yeah. It's not the worst insult, but it's just annoying. <laughs> it is annoying, yes. Uh, um, so looking back at all the brides you've met in your life, uh, I'm assuming you've met some, hopefully you have, but do you believe that there are any shared common characteristics or personality traits that could stem from being a Brian? I think the, so the, with the, the Brian's that I've met in my life and then you in looking through like the famous Brian's and there's, you've mentioned it yourself, Brian May is both a, a, an astrophysicist and a musician. I think the Brian sort of the common theme a lot of times is sort of they're we're eclectic. We, we tend to have a sort of a, a diversity of interests and not just focused on one thing. We're interested in a lot of different things. Um, that's something I think of sort of a, a characteristic I've seen and noticed with Brian's. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I always never know what to expect for this answer. So, <laughs> and let's just end then with uh, any message that you'd like to say to all the Brian's out there. Message to all the Brian's. I would say, you know, uh, in these, in these sort of these times with these crazy times we're living in, just um, continue to, to be optimistic continue to, to, to be positive. And you know, the, the, the Brian's are a beacon of light for so many people. And, um, and well, you know, if, if you're having to go out in public, please wear a mask. And you can learn more about the CDC and uh, safe practices at cdc.gov. Um, shout out to all the CDC workers who have been making those websites because apparently they're uh, pretty, pretty solid, according to Brian. Um, <laughs> thanks, Brian, though. <laughs> thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me.